0: We are star dust million year old carbon we are god caught in the devil's bargain and we got to get ourselves back to the god Please have a seat. God placed the human in the garden to till and keep it. As we begin Lent this year, the lectionary offers us the second of two creation stories from the beginning of Genesis. Like any origin myth, it raises questions about who we are and how things got to be this way and what God desires for us. The stories told in Genesis chapter 1 and then in chapters 2 and 3 are not exactly the same. We tend to conflate them. Sometimes that actually enhances our understanding and sometimes it muddies it but I'd like to look with you at the fuller context of today's lesson before we get to the famous dialogue between the woman and the snake with all its baggage. The first creation story, the one that begins in the beginning, tells of a world made from the watery void in six days of increasing order and complexity. God speaks everything that is into being. Here, though, in Genesis 2, the imagery is more homely. There is no watery deep. Instead, we find ourselves on dusty ground with occasional springs that water the barren wilderness. There are no plants or animals yet, but there... God makes chadam. The word in Hebrew is not a proper name. It literally means the undifferentiated earth creature, formed of brown, dusty clay, tenderly shaped by God's own hands. This being is as yet ungendered, or perhaps potentially any and all genders, The poet James Weldon Johnson describes this scene as God kneeling in the dust like a woman with her baby, toiling and shaping and then breathing the breath of life. That is the divine ruach, a word that means the wild divine wind and the creative spirit, as well as this most intimate breath. So that the earth creature formed of dust becomes a living soul. God is like a potter or a sculptor, a maker who is also a life giver. Then God plants a garden in Eden. Eden means abundance or perhaps delight, the garden of delight. God makes trees grow there, and they are beautiful and nourishing. The trees include the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which scholar Alphanetta Wines suggests means the knowledge of everything rather than some particular moral capability or understanding. God places the human in the garden to till and keep it. The earth creature is placed, related, a participant. There's work to do even in Eden, continuing the work of creation in collaboration with the divine. But the word translated till does not have to do with digging or plowing or even specifically with farming or tree cultivation. It is avad, which in Hebrew means to serve. It's translated serve every other place in scripture that it appears. So what does it mean to serve the garden, the earth, the creatures, and creation? What kind of attentiveness, skill, and humility is needed? What love? And it seems that the service is reciprocal, too, in that the garden gives life and food and beauty to the human in turn. This verse, by the way, provides an, in, an important counterimage to the language about humans' place in creation in Genesis 1, which speaks of subduing the earth and exercising dominion over everything that swims or swarms or moves upon it. That passage has been used to justify unconstrained exploitation of the living world, even though it might better be understood as calling for skilled stewardship rather than oppressive domination. Nonetheless, the humbler image of the servant of the garden challenges us to rethink our role within the web of creation far more profoundly. What does nature the plants and the animals, the land and the water, actually need in order to flourish? And what does that have to do with our well-being as an integral part of the garden? I'm reminded of the words of writer, environmentalist, and farmer, Wendell Berry. He says, we have lived our lives by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world we have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us, and that requires that we make the effort to know the world and learn what is good for it. The story takes another important turn before reaching the next verses that appear in today's lectionary. God sees that it is not good for the earth creature, the Hadam, to be alone. So God creates companionship, not only relationship with the earth and the plants, not only with other animals whose names the earth creature gives them, but finally, God puts this being of dust and breath to sleep in order to divide it in half. Thus is created companionship and belonging, and perhaps gender, or at least the possibility of gender as well. The emphasis is on intimate recognition and mutuality. This is often missed in patriarchal interpretation, including our own. We are told that the two humans, man and woman, were naked and were not ashamed. So now enter the snake. Note that this is another creature made by God, and it is an animal, not a devil. It is described as wild and crafty. There's a pun in the Hebrew here. The word naked and the word crafty share the same root. Maybe the snake is simply being unabashedly who they are. Did God say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? The snake asks the woman. She replies, emphasizing the abundance of God's goodness, provision, and permission. Everything is allowed except eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we touch it, we will die, she says. There are boundaries and limits for the well-being of the human, and perhaps also for the well-being of the trees and the good of the garden as a whole with all its flora and fauna. The serpent begs to differ. You won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is at stake here? Often this is told as an issue of obedience and in the deep sense of that word, which means hearing with an open heart. That's true. But for me, the more fundamental issue seems to be trust, as it will be again and again in the biblical story, as it is for us. Trusting that we have enough, that we do not need some new and shiny object to make us whole. Most of all, trusting that God's love will hold and heal us. This is difficult. Pushing against boundaries is often natural, and sometimes it's necessary. Also natural is our anxiety in the face of our vulnerability and limitation and inability to control our world. Facing all that, discerning where healthy boundaries lie, learning to breathe through and let go of our anxiety, all that is part of the work of Lent and indeed of our spiritual lives. This story holds a mirror in which we may see our stories. The woman sees that the fruit of the tree is both edible and delicious. So she takes it, and shares it with her man who has apparently been present for the whole conversation. They both eat and their eyes are opened. They realize their nakedness and their vulnerability becomes a source of shame rather than a gift of intimate interdependence. Being seen and known, seeing and knowing become frightening rather than joyful. They sew fig leaves together to make loincloths. I learned in my reading that fig leaves are profoundly scratchy. Original hearers of this story would have known that and twitched at the telling. But in shame, almost anything is preferable to naked reality. This is where our lesson stops, but it's not the end of the story. The humans in their fig leaves hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool breeze of the evening, and they hide. God calls to them, where are you? When the man answers that he hid for shame at his nakedness, God asks, what have you done? But it's clear, the boundaries of creation have been broken. There follows a rapid unraveling of relationships and trust. The man blames the woman who blames the snake, and by implication they all blame God for making these others and making a world that includes limits and choices. God describes the difficult consequences of their actions, which will include leaving the garden, the gates of which will be guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, Happens that we have a picture of it just right back there on the wall. They will experience mortality as a defining aspect of their creatureliness. But God, understanding their frailty and their shame, does not leave them to their own devices. Loving them even as they are, God makes clothes for them out of skin surely warmer, more durable, and more comfortable than those made of fig leaves. God is a tailor, as well as a gardener and a maker, providing shelter and nourishment and a path forward. As the longer story unfolds, God will continue to love what God has made and remember that it is good. God will seek ways to heal and restore right relationship with humans in creation. As we begin Lent, the story speaks to me of that divine longing and of the brokenness and urgency of that relationship. Hebrew Bible scholar Ellen Davis says, We are placed creatures. We belong in a web of life and relationships in an order and a location. One of the challenges for us, which would not have been a challenge for many of our ancestors because it was a given in their lives, is how to know the needs and gifts of the particular place we find ourselves, our watershed, our local ecology. Do we know, and thus are we able to love and care for particular plants and animals and neighbors? Do we know where our food comes from and how to take what we need only so that the beings upon which we depend for life and with which we share the earth can continue to thrive and replenish and provide for all? Paying attention is a vital part of serving and using our imaginations to explore the experience of the more-than-human world is another. We need to approach all our neighbors—human and more than human—with humility and discernment. Another theme of this text is the discipline of living within limits. Our culture trumpets the belief that more is always better and growth is always desirable. Our lives are based in an unsustainable practice of taking and exploiting and extracting what we want from both the human and natural world. As Church, we have a special opportunity to offer community and sharing as an antidote to that toxic pattern. To practice faith in God's goodness as medicine for the fear of scarcity that leads to taking more than we need and trying to make it all on our own. If we will, We can learn from one another across generations and backgrounds. We can share gifts and needs for our mutual aid and offer hospitality to our neighbors. One of the questions of the creation stories is whether human beings are like God, and if so, how? In Genesis 1, God says, Let us make humankind in our own image. The plural is intriguing. Maybe it means that we bear the divine image in relationship, in community and solidarity and mutual care. The serpent in our text suggests that the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil will make humans like God, and the desire for that knowledge drives the woman's choice to eat the fruit. But it doesn't work out as she hoped. I wonder sometimes if our attempts to solve the multiple crises of our times, including ecological crises, primarily with technology, with the fruit of the intellect, without conversion of heart, is simply an attempt to make God in our image as a kind of an idol, rather than learning to love and serve God and the good creation that God has made. Theologian Norman Wurzba says, we need to rethink salvation as the art of life-giving homemaking. Not establishing a fixed dwelling, but learning the art of hospitality that, as Wurzba continues, welcomes, nurtures, and releases others into the fullness of their lives so that our presence contributes to the healing and flourishing of all. This kind of homemaking reminds me of the God of Genesis 2 and 3. Blessing and kneeling in the dust, shaping and enlivening a creature with care, planting a garden, tending both humans and other parts of creation, providing food and beauty, and offering what shelter and support are possible, even in the midst of brokenness. What does it mean to serve and care for the garden of creation? God's garden, our garden, where we find ourselves. This Lent, let us live into these questions. Amen.